six. The weather's on the change. 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 The weather's on the Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for listening to this very, very special episode of Promo Mode. We are so honored to welcome back the one and only Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. So Ian's here to talk about a couple of different things. Primarily, there is a book coming out next month called The Ballad of Jethro Tull. And uh, it basically tells the whole story of the formation and the career and the legacy of that band. And I had a lot of questions for him about this. Uh, you know, is this the kind of book that I'm going to read in bed at night? Or is this a beautiful piece of art that belongs on my coffee table? And he explains it in here. It's a little bit of both. It's full of a, hundreds of, of rare and beautiful photographs. It's printed very nicely. If you pre-order the book, your name will be inscribed in this book when it comes out next month. And there are deluxe versions of this book that come with a special seven inch vinyl single that we talk about in here as well. Uh, it includes not only those photographs, but a lot of uh, contributions and quotes from original and former members of Jethro Tull as well. So anyway, if you are a Jethro Tull fan, I would think you would want to get your hands on this thing. And there is a link to all of the information in the description of this show. You're listening to it probably on your phone or something. There's a link right there. Tap on that. It'll tell you everything you need to know about the book. Now, secondarily, we are talking about the 40th anniversary of their 1979 album, Stormwatch, which is getting a deluxe reissue, four CDs, two DVDs. It comes out on the 18th of this month. And we talk about what that album meant in the career of Jethro Tull. I mean, last time he was on, they were just releasing the 40th anniversary of Songs from the Wood one of the most influential and most impactful albums of my life, by the way. And so I'm curious, like, what goes into what albums get this deluxe treatment? How do you feel about it? And in this case, you know, the 80s were right around the corner. Bands like Rush and Yes and Genesis, these prog bands, were really finding themselves commercially in that decade. I was curious how Ian felt like Jethro Tull adjusted to that decade. So we talk about that as well, and there is information on that as well in the show notes. If you'd want to tap on the link that's in there, you can talk, learn more about that as well. Okay? Anyway, here is Ian. There is no one like Ian. Okay. So let me... Uh... Let's, we have a couple things we need to talk about, but first of all, let's talk about the Ballad of Jethro Tull. Okay. The thing that I'm interested in the most is this book looks gorgeous, and I'm wondering, is, is this something I can read before bed and put on my nightstand, or does it belong like on my coffee table? You know, It depends, depends how soon you want to go to sleep. Um, if you if you need to go to sleep fairly quickly, then read the book. If you want okay. to stay awake all night, then it probably won't last that long. It's it's a lot of photography stuff, okay. a lot of imagery, and uh, you know it's. Um, I mean, I've read it several times in the process of being an editor, and of course, having made my own contributions and so on. So, I mean, I'm really familiar with it. But the last time I read it, I I thought it actually. You know, it doesn't take that long for me to read it because I'm kind of speed reading through. I've I've mm -hmm. kind of thought about all the sentences, paragraphs, construction, and the and the anecdotes and so on, whether they're mine or other band members, past and present. So it mm -hmm. doesn't take me very long to read. I think if I was the publisher and I'm not, or the writer and I am not, mm -hmm. then I think I probably would have gone a little bit more on. Um, storytelling and a little mm. less on the uh, on the the photographs but that's okay. just me you know okay. a, a lot of pe people like uh, people like pictures and i can sure. see 
I can see why. And uh, oh. if I would have made it a little bit more detailed on the, not, not, not necessarily quotes from the band, but descriptive mm -hmm. stuff about times and places and putting things into context as well. I think it's very important to remember that when you're talking about an era, you're talking about the musical context, the political context, and of course, mm -hmm. the geographical context too, because Jethro Tull in the 70s and 80s stretched out across uh, planet sure Earth did. with uh, yeah. a few exceptions that we didn't get to until the 90s. But it was a mm -hmm. period of momentous cultural change, a period of opening up of uh, media, opening up of new territories that... Uh, in uh, in perhaps the beginning of our career were not possible to go and play but mm -hmm. towards the end of the 80s mm -hmm. eastern europe north uh, uh, south america and uh, and then of course eventually even russia became wow. open for business so yeah. uh, you know there okay. are quite a few con quite a few continents along the way that suddenly we were able to go to and that that to me is a big part of the story you know it's, it's part mm -hmm. of where jethro tell fits into the into the cultural development and changes globally, not just in terms of one country. It's very easy, especially for an American audience, to be rather centrist in view and to think, oh, it's Jethro Tull, you know, play in North America. No, they play in mm -hmm. Boston, they play mm -hmm. in Dallas. <laughs> but, right. You know, the world is a big place. Um, yeah. And um, I think and even, your president, even your president is beginning to find that out. Oh, goodness. Oh, man. And uh, yes, I don't think he knows. I don't know what he knows. I don't think he knows much of anything. Anyway. Okay, well, so the, it's written by Mark Blake. I don't know that much about Mark. Did he set out to, it sounds like this book is going to be more of like a visual history, something uh, very attractive to look at. Maybe not the in-depth story of, you know, then this album came out and then this person left or whatever. Well, it, it's uh, in it's in depth, but um, oh, it, is. Oh, it is it is in depth. It's in with a lot of a lot of input from previous band members who got it. You know, we, we allowed them to have all of the. I mean, I didn't edit anything that any of them said. Okay. Um, I think I think I might have slightly taken a paragraph or two just on length basis because I felt that you know some people contribute a lot. It's a, their natural inclination is to talk a lot, and other people are a little more reticent. And I didn't want it to be. You know, making it sound like the the contributors, other than me, were, you know, sometimes it might might look as if they were shortchanged, if they didn't appear to have some degree of uh, word count equality. Right. But uh, generally speaking, no, I didn't I didn't have to edit anything. There were no bad feelings manifest yeah. or uh, or you know abuse mm -hmm. or name calling. I mean, they were. I knew they'd all be nice to me, um, mm -hmm. but sometimes you know I I know from history that there were one or two didn't get on necessarily with each other but we have to expect that in a in a large group of people right. sure that there will be some who are less harmonious um in the band context than others yeah, anyway no it, it's good but it's it's as, as i say you know i i think i probably would have done with a couple of pages more text and a couple of pages mm. less photographs but that's just okay. me Okay, but anyway, so Mark did... Blake. Mark Blake. You asked me about Mark Blake. Yeah. is a fairly well-known features writer for the British music media, going back quite a long way. He writes for magazines and has recently written a book. Uh, his previous book was um, was about Peter Grant, the manager of Led mm, Zeppelin. Right. About his life and times, and um, and prior to that, he had a book about the early days of the Who. Perfect. Um, so those are those are the last couple of things that he wrote. Right. And okay. he was uh, he was taken on by the publisher, whose idea the book was to be the writer for this. And I met with Mark some 
well over, I don't know, year, 18 months ago, mm. we, we met and chatted and I thought he seemed to be a guy who was, you know, capable of having the objectivity. You know, he mm -hmm. wasn't coming at it from being a besotted fan of Jethro Tull. Right. <laughs> he kind of knew, he knew who we were and, you know, probably was aware of some of the stuff along the way. But I think when you don't know too much already, then it's much easier to get excited and interested in a topic. Whereas if you think you know it all already, then maybe it, it maybe it would be a little boring, you know, for some True. nerd fan who just already right. <laughs> came to the party with a right. detailed knowledge. It's not necessarily yeah. the best thing. Just so like I, I, as a oh, songwriter, frequently have written my best songs using instruments that I can't play. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's the way sometimes it's, you get somewhere you haven't been before because yeah. you, you don't, you're not equipped perhaps technically or knowledge base uh, um, does not allow you to be um, too clever. You have to kind of just kind of get into it and find, find new directions. And that's, yeah. uh, I think as a writer, maybe it's quite, quite good to write about things sometimes you don't really know that much about mm -hmm. because you have to learn and yeah. that's exciting and you want to yeah. share it with people. Great. Okay. Yeah. So how did you and Mark work together? Did he come to you and say, you know, can you provide, well, we did. We, we yeah, we we sat down for quite quite often to uh, talk about things, and then did a lot of uh, telephone interviews, which were recorded, and then a lot of a lot of emailing to and fro. Yeah, I don't live anywhere near where he lives, so we we only met a couple of times, uh, okay. in flesh, as it were. But um, mm -hmm. yes, we 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 worked together on that, and I of course was a a major contributor and provided, I suppose, two thirds or three quarters of the photographs came from my own historical collection of photo files mm. um some, nice. of, some of which i uh, actually got from glenn cornick before he died he sent me really a of uh, photos that he had but that that i didn't have so i scanned oh, wow. those yeah nice okay okay well so the book comes out in november i think you guys are doing pre-orders now people can go to jethrotollbook.com uh from what i understand if you pre-order there are a certain number of copies of this book that come with a seven-inch single. Can you tell us what's on this single? Well, it was just to try and give value-added, you know, benefit to the to those who sure. wanted the deluxe edition. And so, yes, I mean, they're both things people haven't heard before. They're, they're both unusual in as much as they're spoken word. Mm. One is um, is a piece, um, spoken word piece I do in my fundraising shows in cathedrals and churches and northwestern europe and um that's a piece written by sir walter scott an, an mm -hmm. excerpt of his epic poem marmion and uh, the other piece i wrote specially for the project and it's simply called the ballad of jethro tull and it is a a, a piece that just in a a slightly a similar kind of a fashion to the walter scott piece it it um it is just going through the uh, how the band got together and mm. how it how it developed through the years, but of course, you know, you can only fit so much into a, mm -hmm. into a, a, a relatively small space. And so it's sure. um, a piece that is, and, and the musical backdrop to it is just um, little excerpts from various Jethro Tull songs mm. that kind of go through the uh, storyline along with the spoken word pieces. So they are, right. um, you know, they are of some interest, I suppose, to some people. I had fun sure. doing them. Didn't take too long. And um, <laughs> a couple of, uh, uh, you know, one or uh, probably only one or two takes, I think. Great. So. Oh, good. Okay. You're such a good orator. I would imagine you've got that down. And people love, you've got that great buttery, 
English posh voice that people love to hear. So I'm sure this is going to be killer. Um, and one other thing I want to mention about are people's names can be imprinted in the book. Is that for pre-orders only? I would imagine. I think it is. Yes. Um, okay. I know I, I signed about 600 or 700 copies already. And I think I have another couple of hundred to sign, uh, uh, okay. you know, in a, in a couple of weeks time. So yes, there's quite a, I think, I think there was a limited edition planned of a thousand copies. Right. And so, um, I don't know how many of those, uh, actually have my signature on i should think it must be about 700 so far but i have a i have a sore hand um, not just from signing but but from an injury i i oh, had no. on stage many years ago and uh, i have a bit of a problem signing you know if i sign more than about 100 autographs at a time it's yeah it gets pretty sore so i try not to um overdo it yeah does it impact your flute playing it it does when it's having a bad time, but it only takes someone to shake hands with me and squeeze, and it really causes me agony, and then that takes a couple of days to get better. So it depends on what I'm doing, really. If I'm huh. Most of the time, the answer is no, but I am aware of it when I'm playing the flute, and sometimes sometimes it gets, uh, and my right hand does get a little bit a little bit achy, and I try to keep it flexed and warm, and not uh, not aggravate it by shaking hands if I can possibly mm -hmm. avoid it. But mm. sometimes Fist sometimes bumps. you have to do that. Yeah. Fist bumps for me and Anderson. Okay. Uh, so the second thing I wanted to ask you about was the Stormwatch 40th anniversary uh, deluxe edition that's going to be coming out here, I think, on the 18th of October. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, how do you look back on the Stormwatch album? Some albums in your catalog are getting these giant, you know, beautiful deluxe reissues. Some are not. How is mm. who, who decides and why? Well, in, in the earliest days of... Um... You know, it, it really goes back to the point where, of course, with the different media, because originally, of course, our music was released on vinyl. Mm -hmm. And then the cassette came along. And then we had to, uh, basically throughout the 70s, we were preparing, or I was preparing, cutting masters in the studio and making... Uh, making uh, the version for cutting vinyl, which you had to be careful of because of inner groove distortion and uh, overall mm -hmm. levels and so on. So there were certain parameters, but you could have a reasonably full bandwidth of uh, audio quality from say 50 Hertz up to about uh, maybe 12 K. But then the cassette came along, you see with a very limited bandwidth of maybe a hundred Hertz up to about six or seven K. Mm -hmm. And that was um, meant that you prepared special masters to manufacture the cassettes from mm -hmm. uh, which had a, a limited bandwidth but you would you would give them a little bit more punch at say 6k which was the upper limit of what you could really hear on a cassette tape mm -hmm. and you might you might push it up a little bit uh, since you didn't have the, the the low frequencies you know 40 50 hertz you you probably punched it up at about 120 to make the cassette sound you know a little bit warmer and bassier so mm -hmm. you, you did special tapes, you know, special master tapes for cassette and different ones for cutting vinyl. But what happened with the CD revolutions that occurred in the 80s was that quite often people just got mixed up. And I know there were cases where they used the cassette mm -hmm. uh, masters to manufacture some of the, the early Jethro Tull CDs, which, mm -hmm. of course, was a, was, was a really not, not full quality. Mm -hmm. Plus, CDs were not 
necessarily that that great. They got better as uh, manufacturing got better and as uh, mastering techniques improved. Mm-hmm. But there was a need to remaster those uh, CDs after a very few years, and so remaster started coming out, and then. Um, maybe we were on probably our second or third edition of remastering in the days of EMI records when they sold to Warner Brothers. But uh, before they did, one of the long-standing members of the EMI team, whose job was to look after special projects and re-releases, um, suggested doing a remix, an actual remix from the original master tapes of uh, the Aqualung album. Mm-hmm. And I came up after a bit of research with the name Stephen Wilson, and, yes, um, and he did uh, the Aqualung album, which was, you know, I approved of, and then uh, mm-hmm. went on to do uh, a whole bunch more records over mm-hmm. the years. But uh, in the meantime, Warner Brothers bought well about half of EMI's assets, and uh, I think Universal got the rest. Mm-hmm. But our, all of our stuff went 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 to Warner Brothers, and um, with. Our stuff went this particular person in the from the EMI team who then became uh, a project manager for Warner's doing that part of the the um, the EMI catalog in terms of re-releasing, remastering, remixing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So um, they, usually the impetus comes from them, okay. but you know sometimes it's a bit of a no-brainer it's like the this year the stormwatch album it's the 40th anniversary of stormwatch <laughs> so it makes logical sense that that's when you do it rather than right this is the 39th anniversary right. of that album. anyway yeah. so we, we've been doing that and um and a lot of initial investigation and research goes into the into the the surviving tapes which are mm-hmm. the multi-track tapes being now with warner brothers and um, sometimes, against all my expectations, they actually manage to come up with some unreleased tracks and mm. sometimes m- maybe a different take that was relatively complete. That doesn't happen very often because most often there is only one take because yeah. I never like to keep backups. You know, we yeah. only ever, you know, we would, we would probably only, you know, do one version of a song and that was it. But there were occasions when I maybe more or less completed a song and then said you know what let, let's let's do it again but maybe just slightly change the arrangement or mm-hmm. um you know some element of performance so th- right. they find all this stuff and then it gets digitized from the original very old master tapes and mm-hmm. the digital masters then go to Stephen wilson who who analyzes the original mix where everything lies in the stereo spectrum and the relative balances of different instruments and then starts with that as a you know as a as a template to work from he will then you know lay things out very much the way i laid them out when i did the original mixes and Mm. and that is um you know the starting point then he tries to clean things up to get it much cleaner and clearer and uh, take away the clicks and the hums and the various little incremental noises that uh, are easy to do in the digital domain but weren't very easy with analog tape or were impossible with analog tape but today's technology allows you to get a much cleaner punchier transparent mix uh, compared to what we could do back then and right. um, that's the way we work it but a lot of work goes into it and of course the artwork and the um, the more mm-hmm. detailed elements of box sets like the the new Stormwatch album is a is a typical example of a you know a very um, laboriously arrived at set of 
of uh, musical masters and uh, additional material and a, and again a booklet you know that has lots of photographs and information in so it's it's you know it's really good value for money good. and the interesting thing of course is that record companies weren't interested in doing any of that stuff mm-hmm. 20 or 30 years ago mm-hmm. you know catalog was catalog it was just a freebie you just it was just money for old you know well rope really you didn't have to do yeah. anything you didn't market it promoted it was out there it just steadily sold and that was easy money for them sure but then all of that really dramatically changed with the uh, the horrible realization that the old record company model didn't work anymore and the fact that really only uh, three major record companies left universal mm-hmm. warners and uh, and sony mm-hmm. and um and you know they began to realize that it was an asset that they had the rights to that they should try to utilize and make it profitable uh, and put more effort into it. So I think all the record companies now see the wisdom in re-releasing uh, more mm-hmm. exotic versions of old catalog because it's a it's profitable to them. It may not be, you know, in the numbers game. It's not like mm-hmm. we're selling selling uh, records like Ed Sheeran, but <laughs> right. it's it's all it's all got quite a good profit margin for the record companies, yeah. and they need every penny they can get because, of right. course, these are not any longer the years of high margin product. Uh, mm-hmm. Physical product does not sell very much at all worldwide, right. and uh, physical product had higher margins for the record company and in much higher margins for the artist too. But in this mm-hmm. digital age, it's just it's just a few cents here and there compared right. to, you know, dollars in the past. And um, so record companies have to do what they every little thing they possibly can to try and make uh, a, a bit of profit. And that's yeah. good for the fans because all of this now means that everything that was ever released is being re-released and you can find it mm-hmm. and you can buy it and you can... Right listen to it online and it's it's great for young fans today wanting to catch up with the history of the the great eras of uh, of popular music post war and um, good for the fans good in a small way for the record companies and um, and of course good for the artists in as much as their product is mm-hmm. continuing to be recognized and and reach out to new generations of fans as well as give older fans the opportunity to buy an enhanced right and higher value version of the original record so everybody wins one thing i was curious about is you know after stormwatch we enter the 80s and every band whether it's yes or rush or other bands of your ilk are starting to embrace new wave and uh, they sort of have to to stay you know vital and uh, some of them did it very successfully others did not i was curious what your thoughts were as you were entering the 80s and albums like a broadsword and the beast you know are you do you look back at those as and thinking this is me embracing the technology of the time as best i can do they sound good bad how do you feel about that period well it is about embracing the changes in technology which really developed at the end of the 70s with the uh, advent of more sophisticated uh, analog synthesis and then into the early 80s the beginnings of digital synthesis and um, even digital recording so mm-hmm. there was a big technological change at the end of the 70s and that that was the new technology which while it was new you had the option do you ignore it and put your head in the sand and just carry on mm-hmm. with your you know your uh, Gibson Les Paul guitar and your Marshall amps and your Hammond organ or do you take a look at the new 
opportunities that that might be open to you from the new technology new as it was and you know i thought well it, it, let's see what this can do Let, let's see if it's mm-hmm. a, if this is a useful tool either as a songwriter or as a producer or as a didn't really affect me as a musician because i mm-hmm. i still play the analog um traditional acoustic instruments mm-hmm. that's my job so it doesn't make much difference mm-hmm. to me it's just the overall effect of the band and particularly for keyboard players so um it was a it was a new era and i look back on it with uh, you know sometimes some mixed feelings sonically uh, there are albums that i do feel would have if it had been open to us at the time to have done them maybe um more judiciously mm. and not let not, not let the technology become maybe so obvious then i think i might choose to do that but by the same token the the alternative was just ignore it and um mm-hmm. you know i'm <laughs> kind of person who if there's something out there that needs um looking at in terms of technological innovation and what it can do for me then i'm going to i'm going to look and see mm-hmm. if it works for me mm-hmm. and um sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't but sure. um of course, okay. much of that much of that technology is still what we use today. All the benefits sure. of uh, of uh, particularly the the in the digital world, as far as it affects recording and live performance, and running videos and uh, all the complexities of production. You know, it's very much about the 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 technology of today, which is evolving slowly but all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, it's stuff we still have to you know. Every, not many months go by that I don't have to download very serious updates on <laughs> on software and and, and, and so have to true. learn a whole lot of stuff again. Oh goodness! It. Yeah, so true. Uh, okay, I have two questions left, hope, yep. and then we'll let you go. Hopefully, these are quick. Number one, I want to know why uh, why do you never write a love song? Every other rock group in the world writes love songs, and you don't. And I'm curious if you think that you have and that we don't recognize them as as love songs or it just doesn't interest you you'd rather well, write the, about every, other things there, 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 there are a few in there but it's not something that i feel driven to do very often because so many other people have done it you know with much more uh, um originality than i mm-hmm. could muster you know if you hear songs the first time around and and you think wow that that really is a very beautiful encapsulation of emotion and uh, gives a little you know something a little special about it you realize that 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 avenue is probably close to you you can't mm-hmm. do better than that so it's not something that i'm inclined to uh, persevere with and mm. uh, the the majority of of songwriters that's all they do mm-hmm. you know they don't write about real stuff they just write Very about uh, either imaginary or um elements of their own lives and experience that they mm-hmm. put into angst ridden love songs and um, that's fine. That's this, you know, great. But it's very hard to do anything that hasn't been done a hundred times before. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I tend to always look at the other stuff. And Good. I think there are other artists who've done that in their lives, like Frank Zappa, for example, mm-hmm. the, someone who, you know, he he didn't write love songs. He wrote very true. He wrote weird things about <laughs> weird subjects, and and they were of course very visual, very entertaining, and um, and usually usually based on fairly cutting and dark humor mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. i think maybe you know i mean at least i can let my defenses down and write things that are more personal but frank never did he just yeah never never was uh 
perhaps he wasn't, maybe he didn't want to, but I think he possibly wasn't able just to open open himself up and let us see who the real Frank Zappa was, yeah, what his emotions were, as opposed to being a being a documentary satirist. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, but, but that's great that we have Frank Zappa's music. That's to his art. Into yeah. it. Um, it doesn't sound like everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, Frank Zappa does not sound like Ed Sheeran. No. So um, Ed, <laughs> no Sheeran, like Ed Sheeran that. is an example of those people who just are just putting the, the little twist on a on a very, very, I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's just, it's wagging the tail of a very yeah. old dog. Good and point. for people who haven't heard that stuff before, then Ed Sheeran sounds great. Mm-hmm. But, but for me, I don't hear anything that I haven't heard before. It yeah. just sounds to me like, oh, okay, I know, I, I can mm-hmm. see where he's going with this and the little mm-hmm. vocal orna- ornamentations, which he derives from more contemporary music, some of it you know, um, of a, of a quite a different sort, but, you know, mm-hmm. as an acoustic musician strumming a guitar, he goes out there and does something not unique, but the delivery is, is different. But when mm-hmm. you analyze the music and the lyrics, it's just, it's just more of the same. And I, I, I don't get excited about it at all, but, but yeah. that's me. That's me. Good I'm point. not, I'm not your average rock fan. In fact, I'm yeah. not even a rock fan. <laughs> I like, I like Handel and Mozart. I had a feeling you would say that. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, Ian, you're one of the most uh, influential people, artists of my lifetime. Thank you so much for being you and for talking with me. Well, great pleasure to talk to you too, and uh, and uh, have a good Christmas. You too. If Take you're good. still allowed to say Christmas in your country. but <laughs> I will. I don't care yeah. what other people do. <laughs> there you have it. Ian Anderson. <laughs> the one and only. We are so lucky to hear from Ian. Okay, just to recap one more time. If you want to know more about the book, go to JethroTollBook.com. The link is in the show description right here. You can tap on that. You can learn everything you want. It comes out next month. And as we mentioned, if you pre-order the book, you will get your name inside of it. Also, the 40th anniversary of Stormwatch. That deluxe edition comes out on the 18th of October. That should be the week after this episode drops. So if you want to know more about that as well, there is a description and a link in the show notes to this program. Tap on that. Check it out. I I have said this before. I don't know why, but Jethro Tull are one of the most influential bands of my life. When I heard Songs from the Wood at about 12 years old in my cousin Rick's bedroom, I I was listening to something I didn't know was possible. And what it did to me is that it turned me on to what music specifically from Great Britain would sound like and how good it could be. And and that, for whatever reason, translated into a like of, you know, Echo and the Buddy Men and New Order and the Smiths and Psychedelic Furs and uh, all those guys, Depeche Mode. It went a different direction than prog rock. I like prog rock. I don't love it. Um, I love a lot of what Jethro Tull does, obviously, and Yes, and all those other bands. But it just, it captured my imagination of what music from the British Isles would sound like and how good it sounded. And it, uh, I've never lost it. it. It's a craving that I can't get past. And it's all thanks to Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull. It's changed my entire life. It formed who I am and what I like in music. It's, it's... It happened. I don't. I can't describe it. I can't explain it, but that's what happened. All right? So anyway, a big thanks to Ian Anderson for talking with me. And uh, again, those links are right here. I want to close it out with one more song 
from from Stormwatch. This is North Sea Oil. This is the first track off of that album. No love songs for Ian Anderson. All right? He states that emphatically in here. No love songs. All right? Thanks, everybody. We will be back next week.